Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Karen Payton Crouch. Now, you go by all three, yes? Your middle I name? I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there another famous Karen Crouch out there? Not that I know of. Okay. Now, the first thing I always want to know about people is basically how did they even get to being creative? Um, so was it a childhood thing? Because I know for you, in your case, you came to being a practicing artist later in life. So sort of what was your journey? Were your parents creative, a teacher? How did you sort of get to this point in your life? I grew up in a family that made things. It's just what we did. Christmas was an exciting time because there were all these secrets and you couldn't go into somebody's woodworking shop or you couldn't go to my grandmother's house unless you called first. It was it was a badge of honor to build or fix and only hire if you if it was something you absolutely could not do. So I just uh, my grandmother was quite a fine craftsman. I I don't say artist even though she did some painting but she she did more things like basket weaving or quilting or embroidery or she she would decide that this was a year she was going to have the finest English perennial garden in Wilmington and so she would devote the entire year to planning that and having that and then she was done and then she did something else so we always made things and I think during the years that I practiced law, I took my creative juices out on my garden, and that's my other love. So I would come home, I had a small child, work in the yard, move stuff around, and then when I was, let's see, how old was I? Maybe in my 50s or late 50s, somewhere in there, I decided that I didn't really enjoy practicing law anymore. And I had loved it. It had been a real passion. But I didn't want to do it anymore. So I closed my trial practice and became a mediator. And I got with a friend called Jo Tillman. You might have known Jo. She was a commercial interior designer here. Very, very successful. And we rented this little booth down in Southport at an antiques mall. And we had this little business that we called Another Perspective. And we would buy things and turn them into other things. And that was my job to make these things. And somewhere in there, I realized I was always out trying to find fasteners so that I could put things together other than with hammer nails. And I had some welding cases, so I had interviewed a lot of welders, and I thought, well, I could put a lot of things together that way. And I've always loved sculpture. My whole life I've been fascinated by how somebody could take something as hard as metal or stone and bring it to life. And I still don't get stone. I still don't know how they did that. And so I learned to weld. I tried taking a welding course down at Cape Fear, but I was still practicing law. And if you miss any classes down there, you're out. And I 
I couldn't finish it because you do not go in and say to a judge, I'm sorry, but I have a welding class. Well, you could, but it probably wouldn't <laughs> go over It probably well. would be the end yeah. of, no. Wouldn't go over. And also, it was the middle of the summer, and I was so excited to get in until I realized there was no air conditioning down there at the time and that the only people taking welding in July in Wilmington at Cape Fear were people like me and like Tom Craven, a retired orthopedic surgeon who was taking all sorts of courses, and people who had to have this course to <laughs> for credits. So I got over, I, I did it just enough, I mean like maybe four classes, to get over my fear of the equipment. And then I just taught myself. Now, what time period is this? Give me some years on this. Uh, I think that I have been doing this since about 1998. Okay. So really not that long in the grand scheme. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Okay. So what what was the thing that sort of felt made you, like, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. You, you moved from being a lawyer. And a, a, what kind of lawyer? I was a trial lawyer. Trial lawyer. Mm -hmm. Which is a very regimented sort of lifestyle and specifically more like income as well to something that, that uh, most of society and even from my own experience is a, is a very um, inconsistent and insecure light, uh, income level. So, so switching from lawyer to, you know, lawyer, doctor, all these kinds of professions that everybody see as like safe and secure mm -hmm. incomes to something like being in the creative industries, which is a very insecure, unknown sort of future for your incomes. Was that a difficult transition? I think there were two sort of difficult transitions. One was what do I call myself? I'd called myself a lawyer for many years, and I had been a federal magistrate judge. And, you know, like right now, my tax returns are lawyer slash sculptor. Still <laughs> to this day. That's what they are. I have two incomes. I did have a significant drop in income, but I had had a good practice, and I... I'm married, so we have two incomes. Lee still practices, although this is his last year. And I was mediating, so I still had income. What I saw when I came to ACME, I came to ACME in 2000. That's ACME Art Studios. ACME Art for, Studios for here. And, of course, I saw a lot of, got to know a lot of folks who didn't have any money saved up from years and years and years of practicing law and who didn't have any second incomes you know they were they were teaching they were they were doing anything they could to make a living and yet they were living very rich lives a good bottle of wine meant a lot to some of my new friends a good piece of fish a nice meal an evening out, things that were just part of my life as an older, you know, not maybe not when I was in my 20s, but by the time I was established. So I came to appreciate that while a lot of these artists didn't have a lot of money and while they were living on the edge, I mean, if all of a sudden you needed a new set of tires, you were in trouble. <laughs> they also were living very rich lives. And 
Well, it's one of the attractive things of the sort of the creative industries is the lifestyle of the creative industries. Mm -hmm. we, we often live more for passions and love of and, and the experiences than we do for necessarily money or fame or anything like that. And a lot of people are attracted to this industry for that reason. But it's unless you are very fortunate, it is not one where you're going to have a big retirement fund when you can't do it anymore. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard balance. I mean, I constantly tell my wife that I plan on dying in the studio or in the classroom. Like, I expect to not retire. I mean, but I, that, and that's one thing that, again, is sort of an interesting thing. Like, general society believes that you should retire at a certain point from your profession, whatever it is. Whereas artists oftentimes sort of hit their stride later in life. So like the, the, the quote unquote retirement time is actually some of the most productive and most creative times for a lot of artists. Well, it's because even though this is our work and we consider it our work, we love it. So we don't think of it as something we have to go do every day. On the other hand, if you don't think of it as something you have to go do every day, you're not going to have any success at it. It's really hard. I mean, I constantly t say to my everybody that I talk to, I say, like, I'm going to play in the studio. So, like, mm -hmm. that's the word I use to try and, you know, sort of keep that sort of uh, inspiration and sort of ideas of, like, playfulness and enjoying the act of being in the studio versus I'm going to work in the studio, mm -hmm. which to me sounds like a sort of a dirty word. Somebody, a friend of mine said, you're going to, turn this into a into work, into a job. Well, maybe so, but I was here because I wanted to be. I loved it and, it's, and still do. And so it wasn't job like we think of duty. It was job because it's something that I felt I loved to do, wanted to do, and needed to do. Okay, so let's go back a little step. So you, you came out of Cape Fear, you learned some skills in the, in the welding. And then so like, how did you even come to, you know, because like now you have this, what, 20, 25 years mm -hmm. worth of experience. And so now you sort of have a signature style, you have sort of subject matters that you uh, continually come back to and stuff. But what were some of the issues sort of uh, trying to even trying to get into doing this kind of stuff? And, you know, thinking about treating it as a business uh you know how much do you invest in purchasing of equipment versus you know income levels like because it's always one of those things like if you better buy better equipment theoretically you'll get more clients or make more sales because you'll make better work but did that work out smoothly or the way you thought it would the first issue for me was where i could work i got this little mig welder that operated off of 110, which is, you know, you could plug it in at your house. Well, I live in a historic home downtown. I don't have a garage. I couldn't work. I didn't have any place to weld. So I had to find a place. And a, a friend, Mark Offerman, I say he's my Medici. Mark, do you know Mark? I know of Mark. Mark has a fabrication business. And he did, it was quite fascinating. When Mark he, made. Mates. Mark made, yeah. Okay. And Mark had a place over 4th and Martin, and I was totally fascinated by what he did and what happened over there because across the parking lot from him was another place where this fellow made, like, all the innards for aquariums and 
Butch. I can't remember Butch's last name. And, you know, they were over there duplicating the monitor and hauling it up to Moorhead City. And Mark was making all of the Christmas window displays for places in New York. He was hooked up with a designing firm who designed displays for big department stores, or he was doing the cabinets for Henry Bendel or something. And he said, look, you can work in the corner of my studio, my place, but if I have a big order, you know, you just have to move aside. And so I paid him a little bit of rent and plugged my stuff in there and gradually realized that that little welder wasn't going to get me far. And you see, Matt, I'm, I am fortunate because I had some means and I was able to buy equipment that people at my stage of art would not have been able to buy. So I bought oxyacetylene tanks and rigs and torches and taught myself to do oxyacetylene welding. And then later, I learned about TIG welding. And I thought, oh, well, that was a big, a TIG welder at that time was really an expensive purchase. And that Christmas, my husband gave me a TIG welder. Well, you know, not everybody gets that. It's true. Not everybody gets a husband who gives you a TIG welder. Somebody said, I can't, you know, how many men make their woman happy with a TIG welder? And Indeed. I, yeah. My wife would be very upset with a TIG welder. <laughs> and so I taught myself to do that. But I, I also ran into young artists that I met who had graduated. One young woman in particular who had worked in metal, she couldn't afford any equipment. And she had no place to work. And she was losing herself. Because she just, you know, you come out of art school and you have had access to incredible equipment. And you come out, and you can't afford anything because you're waiting tables or something, you know, working in, in some other job. Yeah, and you have roommates, so you don't have mm-hmm. a place to make your own stuff. Absolutely. But I, I remember somebody saying to me how you don't have to have fancy equipment to make art. You just make it. If you, if you have to make it, you make it. And I think that probably the best advice, you know, when I got out of law school, I was a woman. I was third in my class. I had all but my dissertation. I was writing my dissertation. I almost had a Ph.D. I couldn't get a job in Wilmington. I couldn't get an interview. I could not get an interview. So I hung out a shingle, and I took whatever came my way, and I learned pretty soon that there were some things that people would hire women for that they wouldn't hire other people for. Wasn't the work I mostly wanted to do, but I did it until I didn't have to do it anymore. And I think for young artists, the thing I would say is you have to work. You might have to go do something else during the day and work at night. And you might not have the best stuff to work with, but if you... If you give up, if you don't work, you'll never get there. Well, and that's something I hear a lot from 
other people that I talk to in this podcast, which is basically tenacity and just continuing. Even if you have to scale down at certain times in your career or then, you know, other times, of course, you can scale up. Just continuing to work is sort of the first step. It's like the old saying, like the first thing to be creative is to be in the studio. Right. And to have a place to work, even if that is setting up a corner somewhere, a place that you don't have to pull everything off the dining room table in order to eat dinner. You need a, a place. I mean, the, the beauty of this studio, and folks can't see it, but this is an old carpet warehouse. There are about 22 of us down here. And I have a 20 by 40 foot space. And at the end of the day, I just turn off my equipment and leave. And I don't have to clean up if I don't want to. I don't have to put my stuff away. So finding a place, and, and that's a lot easier if you're a painter than if you're a printmaker or a potter or a welder. Well, having that space also where you can even like put, like I'm looking around your studio where you can put up sort of inspirational things or have a bunch of books or make a mess and just mm -hmm. let it be right. there. And nobody's gonna, you know, no spouse or or friend or anybody, nobody, no roommate's gonna complain that you've mm -hmm. made a mess. Like that, it's your space, and you can be either upset as a clean or as messy as you desire without anybody interfering. Is a, a, a really luxurious thing to have. It is luxurious, but maybe you can make a little corner somewhere. Okay, so then moving forward, so like, how have you been able to? Uh, find ways to to make money doing this thing you love well the first piece that I made I made out of found parts it was a Chanticleer some sort of rooster and all, all the first things I made I put them in the back of I had a wonderful old country squire station wagon that you know you could put a 20 you could put a piece of plywood in the back it was so big so wonderful I would put things in the, in the, we called it the sofa, in the sofa and drive them around and bump up and down to be sure the wells would hold, you know, because I didn't know what I was doing. So I took this thing into this old shop that a friend and I had, and it sold for $100. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I told my friend Fred Anderson, who has since died, but he and I were good lawyer buddies who did a lot of work together. And in the law, you would say, oh, I settled that case for six figures or this many figures. And I said, Fred, I sold a piece for three figures, you know. And I, I think it was just luck. I made what I wanted to make and as good as I could make it at that stage of my career and put it in this old garden shop that my friend Carol Davis and I had. She mostly ran it. And people started buying it. It was. It still amazes me that anybody buys it, buys my stuff. My parents have two of your I stuff. Know they do, and I appreciate it. And from there, I'm trying to think. I don't remember when I first had gallery representation. I do. It was Simmons Wright Gallery. Yes, right. It was Simmons Wright Gallery. It was one of the most beautiful galleries. It was... And Pam asked me to have a show with her, which was extremely exciting because Pam Toll, who is here, she's one of our Acme Lords, one of our landlords. Who was on the previous podcast. Uh, well, I mean, she's just an incredible artist and 
professor at the now she's a professor at the university. When I first knew her, professor. she was getting ready to go back to school because she needed to earn a living. So she went back to I remember ECU. I think right? ECU. Yeah. yeah, and now she's a tenured art professor, and still down here doing her her work, which is just totally from from her heart and soul. But she asked me to have a show with her, and that was very very flattering and exciting and we had this great show at the Simmons Wright which was a good gallery but we don't really need to talk a lot about how it all ended <laughs> and it's people, still very mysterious as far as I'm concerned yeah it is mysterious and people you know they put prices on it and people started to buy my stuff at decent prices then when I came in, and I, I was in a number of galleries, but there was a time in Wilmington when galleries were just closing left and right. But they always sold for me. And I think that was the beginning of my making any money at this because I'm not good at selling. I don't want to do it. I don't want to—I just don't want to do it. I'm basically an introvert and— I want to tout my I wares. don't either. No, no. I would much rather be in the studio than out hawking my wares and whatever, writing grants and whatever else right. I need to do to try and make a living these days. I would much prefer to be making work and then give somebody else the responsibility of selling the work. Right. And and if they do a good job... Take the 50%. Take, right. That's take fine. what you need. Then we start... After I came to Acme... Mark was going to sell. He thought he was going to sell his business. And he told me, and he said, Karen, it's, it's time for you to step it up. You're, you're beyond the corner of my welding shop. You need to go talk to the people at Acme. And I was very nervous. I, oh, you know, I can't go down there where all those important people are. But I did. And once we started having Fourth Friday down here, then I, you know, you could sell out of the studio. And what I realized is I didn't always want to come to Fourth Friday because I didn't want to stand there and talk about me. But once I started coming to Fourth Friday, <laughs> people wanted, they want to know the artist. They want to talk to the artist. Amy from Art in Bloom, you know, she represents a lot of people down here and she'll call and say, some folks are in, they're from wherever. They like your work. Could we come by the studio? And it makes a big difference to people who who want to. They want to know the story behind what they're buying. A lot of times. Well, and that's a hard balance because a lot of artists are introverts and they don't enjoy even just talking about their work, much less like writing about mm -hmm. it and things like this. And it's a very difficult thing to have to do that. And it takes a certain sort of temperament and and type of person to be able to do it well because like I know a lot of people who are in the creative industries that are either not just not talented at it like they just don't have that skill set or they're just not you, you like you want to keep the them collectors away from them because they're mm. they're rude or mm. inconsiderate <laughs> or mean you know but they make gorgeous work mm -hmm. and so sometimes there's that balance of like how involved should you be with you know meeting clients and things like this versus how much does it just leave the work to speak for itself? And it's hard. Well, I'm probably not unique in 
loving it when somebody gets a piece. And when I see somebody really wanting this piece, really loving it, really relating to it, that means as much as selling it. Okay, but like, so let's take a little bit of a difference. So I'm a photographer. Mm -hmm. My sort of my hard, what I call my hard costs are pretty low. So like in the old days, it would be film and paper to print, which are pretty minimal in comparison to you. You're using copper and TIG welding and all these very, what I would consider sort of cost heavy, hard cost materials that you have to at least get the money back for that anytime you sell something so like you can't be just giving away at low prices like you have you have a pretty hard bottom line that like you can't go below i do and that's one of the things when people come in and see what i do when they see the story behind how that piece happened it, they start to appreciate the cost at bronze i work in bronze almost exclusively did i say copper mm -hmm. Sorry. but it's a it's an alloy Sorry. <laughs> it's very expensive and you don't just go buy it anywhere here it's shipped in the best place to get it is atlas metal sales in denver colorado they sell to artists all over the world and it's expensive and it's expensive to get it shipped my gas, the argon that I use to weld my pieces with, it's gone up and up and up since I've been working. And in a, you can't go and get your own tanks unless you can load them in your own vehicle. And they can't load them for you because it's, it's not legal. You take a risk if you haul these tanks in your own vehicle. And so, like... Which sounds horribly dangerous. Somebody who's a lot bigger than I am can go his, get his own tanks. I'm just thinking of, like, what happens if you're coming back from the Argon dealer and you just get in a car accident? That's like, the point. And in all of the... Well, I shouldn't say all. Where I used to get my gas first, there were pictures of cars exploded. They were there by the... Why you do not, why we will not load a tank into your car. So my point about that is that my delivery and hazmat and there's several charges in addition to that tank, which doubles the price of the tanks. So every time I use one of those tanks, that's about... $180. How, okay, so with as productive as you are, how quickly do you go through a tank? I would probably go through about four or five tanks a month. Okay, so about a tank a week. Yeah, but, and, and if I'm working on a really big project, I'm going through more than that. Of course. But I probably, those days might be behind me now, I don't know. Doing the 15-foot things. And <laughs> I remember the turtle with the tree growing out of yeah, it. Yeah, and then I did a piece for, plant, uh, not Plantation Village, the place out of Porter's Neck for their wellness center. That was a 15 by 13-foot piece. So you're not doing as many uh, larger pieces no, anymore. I, because I'm not supposed to be up on ladders and scaffolding anymore. 
Right. Okay. Because you had a. I had a fall and had a head injury, and uh, that's the only thing the neurologist really has said. He said, "Could you just work smaller?" Interesting. Okay. He said, I, "You're. I'm okay with everything else, but really, you can't risk another head injury." So I, I don't. I'm, and by smaller, you know, I still, like I did that bore out there. I might, I'm still doing things. That nobody can see, but it's right. okay. I'll, I'll put a picture online. I'm still doing things that, you know, range from 12 to 14 inches up to three or four feet. Well, just as long as you don't have to stand on a ladder to do it. Like, right. That's a pretty and I invested height. in this piece of equipment over here, a gantry, had someone build that for me, and I can... I can hook things up to it and move it around in a way, you know, that I don't have to depend on somebody else. But once again, Matt, I am in a very privileged position, and I I really want to say that because a lot of folks could not have done what I got in the equipment I got that allowed me to move forward faster than I might have. Well, it just couldn't happen. You have both the benefit of the equip, being able to afford the equipment, but also being able to afford this very large studio. Right. Like, I believe this is probably the largest single studio in Acme. Pam's probably Okay, is. Pam's. Oh, she owns the yeah. place. I expect right. that. <laughs> but, I mean, one of the largest. Uh-huh. I mean, 20 by 40, that's right. huge. I mean, so I have my own little standards. gallery out there, and I have a workspace, and I have a place to sit and visit and think. And this um, lovely little sofa lounge that we're sitting in as well. sofa, yeah. My little lounge with my little cheap, my little worn-out oriental rug. Oh, I'm sure. I can bring my dog. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure half of this stuff is probably found in the garbage, but would be reused. It's <laughs> well, great. Well, you know, we've always said at Acme, if you if you are an item and you actually make your way to the garbage and get hauled away, you truly have no useful life. Yes. Because we've tried several times here to have like a garage sale or yard sale, and the stuff gets piled up, and pe- we're all picking through it, and before you know it, there's nothing, there's nothing left. left to yeah. sell. <laughs> That sounds like my house as well, yes. So when you come to Acme as an object, it, you might be at the end of your life or you might be at the beginning of a whole new, you might be incorporated into something quite wonderful that'll last a long time. All right. Now, one thing I, one thing I wondered about you, because a uh, long time ago, I remember seeing the turtle tree growing. Mm-hmm. I think it was a hospice, hospice. piece also, mm-hmm. right? Do you do things like grants, RFPs? Do, so do you make proposals? Like when you, so it seems like you're not doing large outdoor stuff anymore, but when you were, did you have to propose things or did things sort of just get offered to you? In every instance where I did a big piece, someone came to me and said, we, we want you to do a piece. And I, for the, the hospice piece, I did a little, quickly did a little bronze turtle. I did a real cartoony drawing, and I said, you know, I I can't tell you what something is going to end up looking like. It's not how I work. I work very organically, and it kind of makes itself along the way. And if you trust me, and they did, and they they were pleased, for the place out at Porter's Neck, I actually did a little bronze model of this giant oak tree. And then I had an assistant 
who came in here, it was to go up against a wall, and he built a wall. He duplicated their wall in here. Theirs was, of course, much stronger. We, ours wasn't as strong as theirs. We blew that tree up and put it up on the wall and welded to it. So that project, the total concept of that project was done when I did that model. And all we were doing for eight months was welding. So, and scaling it up, yeah. The, the tortoise happened as I went along. The Minnie Evans piece, which is at the entrance to Airlie Gardens, it's a mythical beast based on Minnie Evans' little green animal. And Minnie and I kind of worked on that together. <laughs> and I didn't know until the last weld what it was going to be like. So I, I have been paid. You know, I have submitted a, this is, this is what you want. This is what it will cost to do it. But I have not done grants or anything like that. You're so lucky. I'm very lucky. I, I do... I, I want that. I want everybody to know that I'm not saying it's easy for people to do this. It's a lot of work to do to live that lifestyle of like grants and RFPs and all this kind of stuff. Because actually, I'm going to say something, and I, I don't mean this in any offensive way, but like you don't have a very big internet presence. Your website is very oh. outdated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and it's sort of surprising to me because like. You are very productive. You are very active, but you, you have chosen or neglected to sort of be part of the sort of internet. So, you do you have social media? No. You have no social media. No. In I have an email ways, account, had, and I can text. That's I, it. And your email account was even a bit difficult with <laughs> me as well. But, but I, in some ways, I, I admire you for not having that and I sort of wish that we we didn't have to have social media for most of us so like do you find it beneficial to not have, be active on the internet or do, do you think like maybe it could have helped you in some way I think to be? it could have helped Matt and neglect is the word I don't really know how to do it and my website was set up back when we didn't set up our own websites you know somebody set them up for you and managed them and then those people left and I have had, I, for years, I've thought, I'm going to set up a website and tie it into that old website. But now that Amy Grant is handling everything for me at Art and Bloom, she has that website. And, of course, I've seen a tremendous difference in, in my sales because she's selling all over the country. I have a piece that's in, in Chicago in a garden that was featured in Dwell Magazine. Nice. The house was, yeah, yeah. and the pieces in there. So I just couldn't, I probably could do it. I'm not an unintelligent person, but I'm just not going to, and I know I'm not going to, and so she does it. She does it. So she is my web presence. But I agree with you. If Over the years, if I had been willing to maintain a web page and put my new stuff on there. I am not trying to tell you to do it in any way, <laughs> shape, or form because it's it's difficult. I mean, it, it's, it's just another time thing mm-hmm. that takes away from 
whatever. And in some, to a certain extent, even when it comes to social media, it becomes an emotional thing because you start putting things on. People don't like it as much as you they hoped they would, and then you get like, oh, well, why don't they like it? You know, and then you. So it becomes an emotional circus, and so I wish that in many ways that I could live the life that you live, which is, you know, not caring about the the internet and the social media stuff and being able to have somebody like a nice gallery basically handling all this for you. But Matt, if I if I had to depend on this to pay my bills, I wouldn't have that choice, I don't think. Okay. Well, let's see, and that's an interesting balance. So, mm-hmm. like, so to a certain extent, again, going back to that word, like you have the luxury of having some other incomes that make it so you're not sort of forced to try to make your sculptural work your primary income. And so therefore you don't have to do a lot of these public relations things and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And that, that really means that I so admire the people who are out there living off of their art. I do. You know, you folks who are making your living doing this, it's it's a sacrifice, but it's also, it's very brave to do, to make that choice. And, you know, like right now, Pam, yes, Pam is a tenured professor at the university, but Pam was the person I remember who didn't know where she was going to get the money to put four tires on her car. That was Pam, you know, and she, and you know what? She was still right down here over there in that studio working her heart out. Well, and okay, but within that, you also have a very good work ethic. Like I do. Every time I hear about you, it's like, oh, it's 8 a.m. I have to be at the studio Uh or it's 5 p.m. I'm done. Like you have a very strict work ethic about like being in the studio from a certain time to a certain time. Does is that is that good or is that bad? I think it's good, and okay. I'll tell you when I first started doing this, when I first came down here, and I saw people who could come in here every day and didn't. I didn't get it. I still don't get it. I I mean, I thought what a what a privilege to be able to come in here and make art. Why won't you do it? So I would be frustrated. There might be people who would be frustrated with me because I could afford to do it. But I would get frustrated with people who could do it and didn't. And I would think, why aren't you doing it? You have talent. You have opportunity. And you have time and you have space. Yes. Like those are the two. The, the three things that most artists want are time, space, and money. Mm-hmm. Now, not all of us are going to get money. But if you can at least get the first two, you can sort of push towards that third one Mm -hmm. so time and space are some of the biggest uh desired things like i mean i have a studio though it's not as big as i would like but i have a little bit more time to be able to devote to my studio work so there's i have some of the two but not the third the money part that's the hardest one that's the chasing the dragon sort of like Mm -hmm. trying and trying and trying and building a collector base, making more connections with galleries and so on. And it just takes time. And a little bit of it is luck. I mean, you can have an incredible amount of talent and you aren't the one that gets that lucky break. And I think, do, do you remember Leon Schinker? The name sounds very familiar. Leon died a few years ago in his 90s. 
he was an art professor at NYU, and he had a studio down here. He had retired down here. He was one of the abstract expressionists. Oh, he yeah. was on the young end, mm-hmm. but you know he knew Jackson Pollock and hung out with all those guys. And, and Leon was very, very good. But there were, you know, you can go in MoMA and see people that Leon, they were his friends, they were his colleagues. I can look at that work and say, why is that work on the wall of MoMA and Leon isn't? But that person, somebody picked that person up. Now, you, that person had talent, but so did Leon. You know, so it's not, you have to have all the stuff first. <laughs> and then whether you make it big depends on a lot on luck. Sorry. <laughs> it, it's an interesting issue because I, I do portfolio reviews right now online also. Of course, I'm a teacher and all this kind of stuff. And part of the thing is, is that I keep telling people is like, Skill, craftsmanship, uh, expressive abilities, all these kinds of things are very important to have, but there is that element of you have to be a good person and people have to like to work with you. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have to be in the right place at the right time. Because mm-hmm. like, if you're not in the right place in the right time and you're an ass, nobody's going to want to work mm-hmm. with you. Like, So you still, above and beyond all of it, you have to be a, a nice person. I, I, I brought this up in the previous podcast episodes because... At a certain point in my life, I was probably not a very nice person. So, like, you know, and and it it affected my career in very negative ways. And now, of course, with hindsight, I'm like, oh, that's why I screwed that part up. So, and I know a lot of people who, like, through their own arrogance or their own whatever, they've hurt their careers mm-hmm. because they're not fun, enjoyable, or professional in their work environments and their work relationships. And that's a very important thing to to have. I think. I think being a nice person is a good thing to aim for. <laughs> it's a very low bar, I think, <laughs> is what I'm setting there. I'm looking over at your works here in the studio. You have, from my memory of your work from previous years, and of course now what I'm seeing currently in your studio, you work with f- animals, structures. I think you're sort of the two things, or architectural design mm-hmm. part things and animals. Do you find that people are receptive more to one versus the other? Because I'm always interested, a lot of artists uh, work on sort of multiple styles of things, and sometimes that works really well for them uh, because some people love, and let's say in your case, some people love architectural, structural stuff, mm-hmm. and some people love natural, figurative stuff and animal stuff, but maybe they don't want both kind of thing versus choosing just one thing to be masterful at. Is this something that's rattling around in your head of like, maybe I should, or is it you don't even concern yourself with it? It it rattles around in my head, but it really doesn't control. Okay. I I, I grew up in the country. My father and his father were sort of Walden Pond people. I didn't have playmates. My brother was six years younger, and we just played with each other or played by ourselves and lived in our heads in the woods. And all of the natural forms, that's what informs me, whether it's an animal or whether it's, it's a, a plant or whether it's a, 
you know, a house. I'm really, I've always been intrigued by shape and by how shapes work against each other and lean against each other and flow. People do like animals, but that's not why I make them. Probably should be, but it isn't. And the things I do are kind of gnarly. So. Yeah, your animals are not necessarily beautiful animals. No, no. because I, I grew up in the, the fairy tale world where, and, and the mythology world. I could see it. It wasn't Disney. Yeah, we didn't, grim fairy tales. Yeah, right. And I can remember just spending hours looking at the illustrations in my fairy tale books, and they were, they were a little scary. And I even had a fellow looking at PC the other day, and he said, oh, I really like this piece over here. It's a ram. It's sort of a totem. And he said, but my wife would think that's too scary. And they're not scary, like spooky scary, but they're not cute. And I didn't grow up with cute. I would never have said the word cute with your work. <laughs> no. And I don't even, I don't know. I think I've had some really successful series that were anthropomorphic. They're all gone now. That was a, a series. That was a group. It was hard to sell because the they looked cart, so the good cart together. The with the animals coming out of them stuff? Well, there was a Ptolemy frog and a tortoise and a top hat and a, a rat, two rats that were <laughs> pair. And, and they all, I don't know where they came from. Some people saw wind in the willows. That was kind if they saw that, I thought. And those things pretty much flew out of here and I would sort of like to do some more and yet I've done those and you can't do I can't do something twice it the life has gone out of it it's like trying a case you know a case that mistries or gets appealed and you have to try it again you just all the life all the spontaneity is gone which actually brings up an interesting question so your work is very labor intensive and I mean it like is. so like how long let's say I'm looking at this totem it's about one foot tall, 12 uh -huh. inches tall. Like, so how long would that take you? That, a few days. Because okay. it, because you notice it's a totem, and so it's most, the, the detail is in the head and the base. But other pieces, it, it's un, it would be unusual for me to do almost any piece in less than two or three weeks. Okay, well, the reason why I'm getting to this is, because you even mentioned the idea of working in a series. So the question would be, Are you, do you, when you sit in your studio, do you intentionally say, I'm going to make a series of XYZ? Or do you make things and then a series sort of comes to the set of work that you started making? The latter. You know, I might start, start on something and while I'm making that, something else comes to mind, and then they all sort of flow together. And I really like the idea of having a little body of work that all works together. Angela Rowe and I right now, are, we're going to have a show with Amy next August, somewhere, virtually or somewhere. And Angela has started doing some work in clay. So see these houses up here that she's made, and she said, well, would you make some wheels for them? Well, as it turns out, I'm making wheels and I'm making something that's pulling them. And so we're now off on, on this. And 
there's some masks that she's making and I'm making frames for them. And then there'll come a point, I guess, where we'll just be done with that. Well, that that's one of the things, because like I see this debate that exists in the art industry, which is sort of one-off pieces, maybe consistently of your style, let's mm-hmm. say, versus creating sort of... Um, bodies of work kind of things some artists love doing just sort of individual pieces that are of their oeuvre kind of thing versus others really really love sort of fulfilling an entire thought Mm -hmm. and creating a finished body of work and then moving on to the next thing kind of an idea it seems like you're more body of work kind of person i am i mean sometimes they're just individual pieces because you can't sustain I, i mean sometimes i come in here and i clean up the studio because it's very hard to sustain that that creativity every minute of every day. But you still have to, I still need to be in here working, thinking. Well, that's your work ethic. Not everybody <laughs> thinks like that. Well, I've I practiced law 40-something years now. And I was, this seems like a luxury work ethic to me compared to that. Now, you also mentioned that like some of the things flew out of the door, some of the things took longer to do. Do you store any of your unsold works? I guess the previous question to that should have been, do you even have any unsold works? I don't have a lot right now. Hmm. And that's that's a really, I sound like an NPR interview. That's a really good question. Thank Matt. you very much. <laughs> I've often wondered if a piece has been around for a while, should I take it away? Oh, do you do that? But I don't. Okay. Because, like, I had a piece in here for a couple of years, and this couple just kept saying, we love that piece, we love that piece. And I thought, well, and then one day they bought it, and they do love it. And they, they were just waiting for the right time. So I, I don't like for things to get stale. And fortunately, since Amy, they don't seem to be getting stale but her attitude is, well, it's just waiting for the right person. Sure. But, I mean, a lot of artists, myself included, we, we have to devote a lot of our space to storing works that are either have not sold or, mm-hmm. in my case, even some works that I haven't even had the opportunity to exhibit, which is another issue as well. Like So the, even the ability just to let the public see the new works, which to a certain extent you have, again, a bit of a luxury because – the fourth Friday tours come mm-hmm. to your studio. So you don't even have to put on an exhibition. You just need to put it on display and people will come to you. But you know, it's a, it's a, an issue for me. And this is a, a probably a luxury issue too. This whole when interview, get, luxury is all it is. <laughs> well, to the, privilege and luxury. That's me, all we're talking about. Being able to do this is an incredible privilege. I mean, I never thought that I would have this opportunity. This is, and I'm grateful for it. You have a very uh, aspirational studio and, and, and career going, as far as I'm concerned. But I know that the goal is to sell work. But when I'm working on a body of work, I want to show it as a body. So this group I had called Conclave, and I can show you some pictures, a very successful group, and I didn't want to sell any of it or show any of it until I had, like, the 12 pieces done. And people started saying, but I really want this. And I, 
I finally said, well, it's going to be in a show on X. If you want to pay me for it now, you can. But I want it in that show. So I went into that show with like six red dots, and it was an extremely successful show. I was going to say, you're literally defining everybody's dreams here, but go on. And I think one reason is because there were all these dots, so it looked like a successful show. So that's a piece of of advice for folks if they, you know, if you can pre-sell some things and you can show your work with some dots, it sort of encourages people to It certainly to does. Buy. Absolutely. I used to work in art galleries and we used to jokingly put up a red dot just to say somebody's bought something. Mm-hmm. So like you should think more about buying. Yeah. Okay, two last questions. I, generally, my last question is advice, but you started with advice, so we're not going to ask that again. Your greatest dream. So, like, if you had the opportunity to make a piece, either what would the subject matter be and or where would you want it to be having its permanent home? I've thought a lot this spring about John Lewis, the civil rights icon. He he went through so much. He was so principled. And yet he maintained such a loving, forgiving attitude and a positive attitude. I have no idea what I would do because I haven't thought that far. And in today's world, I don't know. Do I have a right to make a piece about John Lewis? You know, I'm an old white woman. Southern white <laughs> An woman. old Southern white yeah. woman. Very Southern. Yeah. But I, I haven't really thought about what about this question before, but it probably would have something to do with justice because that that's a part of my life too. And I was very proud as a lawyer of some of the civil rights work I did. I did, towards the end of my career, I did a lot of or good for a local for Wilmington lawyer a fair number of civil rights actions and they were police misconduct actions ironically enough mm-hmm. and some of them were bigger cases and some of them were little people who were mistreated and I remember a lawyer from a big firm saying to me "You, know, what are you doing this for you know, you know, the, I mean, the jury fines for you. They're only going to give you X dollars. And then there was a silence, and he said, you don't care. And I said, I don't. And so we settled the case. And those, when I think back on those moments where I made a difference, not just in civil rights cases, sometimes in some little case that it was just somebody got his kids, you know, those those are proud times, and I quit practicing when I seemed to be moving into a place that was different from that, and I didn't want to. I just didn't love it anymore, and so I would, you know, it would be a, a big honor to do a piece that somehow honored that. Don't know what it would be, but that's far more eloquent an answer than I would give. I'd probably say something like a piece in MoMA, you know. (laughs) Last question for you. And again, I apologize if this sort of, if you take this wrong, but like 
you're getting older mm-hmm. and one of the one of my previous guests was uh talking about like estate planning for artists like where where their papers and their collections and their research and their sketches and stuff like you know putting it into uh library collections or museum collections or this kind of stuff like have you thought about any of this kind of stuff I'm, i have never considered myself that important matt I just assume that, you know, my children and grandchildren will divide stuff up. I just don't, I don't think of myself in that category. Never have. As good an answer as any. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Matt. (laughs) Well, thank you for taking the time.